Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The angels showed me a river that was crystal clear, and its waters gave life. The river came from the throne where God and the Lamb were seated. Then it flowed down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river are trees that grow a different kind of fruit each month of the year. The fruit gives life, and the leaves are used as medicine to heal the nations. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we are coming to the final episode in our study series we've called, But What About? Because a lot of time you hear questions like, But what about angels and demons? Or, What about heaven and hell? So far in our series, we have discussed the angels, demons, the angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and hell. On today's show, we want to focus on the happiest topic of the series. But what about heaven? I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why did you pick these topics to feature on this But What About series? I suppose we probably could have picked any number of others because there are so many topics in the Bible that cause some level of confusion in the minds of many Christians. Why did we focus on the topics that we did? Well, before we get too far into our topic for today, I would like to say a word of greeting and thanks to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, we picked the topics that we did for this But What About series because we wanted to spend some time focusing on the supernatural dimensions of the Christian faith. The Bible is a book that is firmly grounded in time and space, but the Bible also gives us information about the supernatural realm. And that, by the way, includes the science that underscores the historicity of Genesis. We did a 10-episode series on Anchored by Truth called The Truth in Genesis to illustrate the accuracy of the opening chapters of Genesis. That series is available from our website, crystalseabooks.com, or most major podcast apps. Right. So Christianity is firmly anchored in time and space, but as I've said, it's also a faith that recognizes that the entirety of the created reality includes more than just the things that we can see in this world, the things that we can perceive with our five senses. And as we pointed out, if the Bible did not give us information about the unseen realm, we might have reason to wonder whether the Bible had a supernatural point of origin. If the Bible only described things we can see and hear, we could get the revelation the Bible contains from our own senses. But the Bible gives us evidence of its supernatural origin because it contains additional, special revelations. The Bible gives us information that we can only get from the Bible, such as information about angels, heaven, and hell. Exactly. And it's important to note that the information that the Bible gives us about the unseen supernatural realm 
It's not just in the Bible as sort of a random inclusion. The information that the Bible conveys about the supernatural realm is included for a very specific purpose. The inclusion of that information in the Bible is a part of God's overall plan to redeem a people for himself. In the case of hell, we are given stark images of the fate that awaits those who do not acknowledge God and Jesus as a warning. In the case of heaven, we are given images of a state of eternal joy, blessing, and bliss as part of encouraging us to remain faithful even when our time on this earth is filled with tribulation and trouble. Yes. So, just as with the rest of the Bible, the Bible gives us information about the unseen realm for our benefit. God's concern throughout the Bible is for the welfare of his people. It is very important for us to know that there is something better out there that is absolutely assured for everyone who trusts Christ as their Savior. And the destiny that awaits Christians is not just better, it's far better. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, quote, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better indeed, unquote. That's the version in the Berean Study Bible. So what do you think Paul means that it is, quote, far better indeed, unquote, for him to depart and be with Christ? The Greek phrase that is translated there as far better indeed, that's a very emphatic phrase. Now, Albert Barnes, who wrote a Bible commentary in the middle of the 19th century, put it this way. He says that in that phrase, the apostle seems to labor for language which will fully convey his idea. Barnes says that phrase means by much more or rather better. And the sense that Paul is trying to convey in that phrase is that heaven is better beyond all expression. Paul knows, and he wants all Christians to know and be certain, that the very instant that we leave this life and we are with Jesus, that life is going to be so much better than anything that we can possibly envision on this earth. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, quote, The scriptures say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Unquote. Paul is literally saying no human mind ever has or ever can imagine the wonder, joy, and beauty God has prepared for his children. Correct. So in Philippians 1.23, Paul is telling us something that is very important about heaven. And it's one of the key thoughts that I want to emphasize for today. You know, sometimes when you look in the culture around us, we're given these cartoonish versions of heaven. Pictures of believers and angels sitting around on clouds playing harps. We're told that in heaven what we're going to do is worship continually. And that's true, by the way. But the vision that people have is believers sitting in sort of a really beautiful church and we're just singing the same hymns over and over. But I think that that misses one of the main points about heaven. Heaven is not just a better version of earth. Heaven is an entirely different reality that is characterized by life, abundance, triumph, joy, and yes, worship. The New Geneva Study Bible put it this way, To think of heaven as a place is more right than wrong, though the word place could mislead. 
Scripture describes heaven as a spatial reality that touches and interpenetrates created space. In other words, heaven is a place that is not this place, but just improved as someone might remodel a house to update it or make it better. Heaven is a different kind of place than our creation. Right. And unfortunately, here the words and images get kind of tricky. The Bible has to use human words in order to communicate with us. And human words aren't necessarily finite in the information that they can convey. Quite often, the Bible will use analogies that we are familiar with to try to get us on the right path when it comes to thinking about someplace like heaven. Now, heaven is filled with joy and bliss. One analog that the Bible gives us about heaven is that heaven is like one of the most joyous of earthly occasions, a wedding feast. And I've been to a couple wedding dinners that were more chaotic than joyous. And that points out one of the huge differences between heaven and earth. The feasts and the banquets, the celebrations in heaven, they're never chaotic. They're never afflicted by the tensions that affect our earthly celebrations. But as human beings, our view of the analogs that the Bible uses to describe heaven, well, they are inevitably tinged by the effects of our fallen creation and tinged by our fallen nature. And that's why the New Geneva Study Bible warns us that to think of heaven simply as a place can be misleading. Heaven isn't just someplace other than earth. Heaven is an entirely new reality into which believers will enter when they leave this earth. And so when we enter that heavenly reality, not only is the destination that we're heading to going to be different, but we are going to be different. Wow. That's an amazing thought. It's staggering in its own way. That throws a whole new light on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come into being. That's from the Berean Study Bible. As long as we are on this earth, the new creation is unavoidably linked to the old person. So believers receive a new spiritual life the moment they accept Christ, but we are still in our old bodies with our old sin-tainted minds. But when we leave this earth, we leave all that behind forever. Exactly. So, when we come into the presence of Christ, and at first, that's going to be in what's sometimes termed the intermediate state, the remaining elements of our fallen, corrupted self, they're just going to fall away. Well, as the final portion of 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the new has come into being. So when we leave this earth, we can now experience our relationship with Jesus and with others who are going to be there in a brand new way. We're going to be new. Now, at first, we're going to experience that in an intermediate state. And that's a state where our spirit will be with Jesus, but we will not yet have received our glorified, resurrected bodies. We're going to receive our glorified, resurrected bodies after Jesus' second coming to earth and the final judgment. But even in that intermediate spiritual state, we are still going to be with Jesus in heaven. You said that heaven is an entirely different reality, which is characterized by life, abundance, triumph, joy, and worship. So what you're saying is that we begin to enjoy these experiences immediately after death, but the height, depth, and breadth of those blessings 
only starts then. The life, joy, abundance, and all the rest will grow for believers throughout all eternity. Exactly. You know, it's not possible, but let's just suppose you could take all the wonderful, beautiful, joyful experiences of your life and somehow extract out of them all of the joy, the wonder, the happiness, and the exhilaration out of all of them. You know, out of all the birthday parties and Christmases you had. Out of finding out that the person that you love really does love you. Out of your wedding. Out of the birth of your children and your grandchildren. Take all the exhilaration and the grandeur out of all the sunsets and all the sunrises from the beach or the top of a mountain. If you could condense all of those feelings that you've received throughout your entire life and push all that together, it would still not equal the joy and happiness that we are going to feel in just one second in heaven with Jesus. That's a lot to take in. Anyone who's older than four or five has some moments of happiness and joy, but they've also had times of pain and regret. And some people who are pretty old have led very blessed lives, so they've experienced a lot of pain, loss, and agony, but they've also experienced a lot of beauty, joy, and bliss. So to think that the first second with Jesus will dwarf all that emotion and feeling of an entire lifetime is a pretty staggering thought. Yes, it is. And that doesn't even begin to convey the reality of heaven. Because as we've been talking about, heaven is far, far better than this world. But we are going to be, if you will, far, far different than we are in this world, in this fallen creation. We are going to be better people in a better reality, and most importantly, we will have a better relationship with the Lord. The New Geneva Study Bible says this, We can form an idea of the perfect life in heaven from what we experience imperfectly now. So that's what the Bible is doing for us when it compares heaven to a wedding feast or banquet. Wedding feasts and banquets are joyous occasions, so we can know a little bit about the joy of heaven by thinking about the joy that goes along with them. And we can know something about the abundant life of heaven from our opening scripture, which says, quote, The angel showed me a river that was crystal clear, and its waters gave life. The river came from the throne where God and the Lamb were seated. Then it flowed down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river are trees that grow a different kind of fruit each month of the year. The fruit gives life, and the leaves are used as medicine to heal the nations, Right. Now, notice that the central images of those verses from Revelation are all about life and abundance. And the life and abundance flow from God and Jesus because those verses say the river came from the throne where God and Jesus are seated. Right. So, heaven is characterized by life and abundance. So that's why you had Maria in your book, The Prodigal's Advocate, tell the prodigal, quote, But in the advocate's land, no one ever lacks anything. His kingdom is defined by abundance. Scarcity is not only unknown, it's impossible. The advocate is so generous that before we will even recognize that we want anything, he will have already supplied it. His kingdom is so big that it contains everything anybody could conceive of wishing for. Yes. Heaven is characterized by life in abundance. 
Now, that's a wonderful thought, and we need to embrace that and embrace it fully. But I do think that there might be a tendency to think that the joy and the bliss that we are going to feel in heaven are kind of the consequences of all of the life and abundance that is going to be surrounding us. And the worship of God, who is the source of all abundance, would be a natural response to joy and bliss, wouldn't it? Well, sort of. But I think we have to be careful. Heaven certainly is characterized by life in abundance, and for human beings, happiness and joy are a natural response to having everything that our hearts could desire. But I don't want to get things backward. The primary business of heaven is not to give us everything we want or could have wanted. The primary business of heaven is to give us what every human being, what every person needs most, a direct apprehension of our Father, our Savior, and a truly intimate relationship with Him. And it's not too strong a statement to say that our primary activity in heaven is going to be worship, but again, the words can become tricky. What you're saying is that on this earth, many people think of worship like they do any other human activity. We set aside time to eat, work, use the computer, exercise, watch sports, whatever. And we see worship in the same vein. Worship is what we do at church, or when we say grace before a meal. For the more faithful of us, maybe we set aside our own private times of worship where we read the Bible and pray, hopefully regularly. But even for those who do that, we tend to think of worship as a separate activity that we fit into our overall life schedules. Yes. You know, but even on this earth, it is possible to understand worship differently than just when you go to church or pray or sing hymns. The New Living Translation of Colossians 3.23 tells us to work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. It's possible to not just confine our worship to the time that we are in church. We should be serving and worshiping God throughout our entire lives, and worship can and really should be the central focus of our lives here on earth. Because it will definitely be the focus of our life in heaven. Yes. So, while heaven is characterized by life in abundance, that life in abundance is not primarily what heaven is all about. What you're saying is that heaven is first and foremost heaven because in heaven we will have unbroken communication with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 and 13 say, quote, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. And then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. That's from the New Living Translation. Yes. When believers die, they immediately enter into the presence of Jesus. And from that moment forward, all our communion with Jesus enters a brand new phase. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8 tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So in this brand new phase of our relationship with Jesus, we're going to continue what we began on this earth. But when we enter that brand new phase, we're going to enter it without being afflicted by our old sin nature. Our old sin nature is going to drop off us as if we were tossing off an old set of rags that we were wearing, and then when we did, everyone could see the beautiful outfit that was underneath. 
Now, at first in that intermediate state, when we are with Jesus, we're going to live in that first beautiful outfit. But after Jesus' second coming, we're going to receive an even better outfit. One day, our eternal spirit is going to be clothed with a body that is not only eternal, but also imperishable. And then, as the Apostle Paul said, we're going to know God in the same way that God knows us today. That, of course, doesn't mean that we will know God exhaustively. We can never do that. God is infinite, and we are finite. We will not know God exhaustively, but we will know God directly. We'll know Him immediately. There'll be no barriers between us and God. And also, we will not have a sin nature that will affect our vision, if you will. So in that state of unbroken communion with God, we are going to enjoy the benefits of being in the presence of the person of the one who is the source of all things good. Now, notice in those verses from Revelation, the river gives life and the fruit of the trees also give life. And unlike trees on this earth, even the leaves of those trees have healing properties. That is not to imply that there is a sickness in heaven. But what the book of Revelation is doing is drawing a contrast between the new heavens and the new earth and the old one. In the Garden of Eden, there was one tree of life. But in heaven, trees that bear fruit that give life are planted all along the river that flows through the city. And those trees don't just have a harvest once a year, like most trees on earth. They have fruit every month of the year, and there's no barrier to anyone picking the fruit. It's open to everyone all the time. Heaven is characterized by life and abundance, but we have to keep in mind that the life and abundance that's there is present because we are with God. Now, contrast that blessed state in heaven with hell. Well, in hell, not only is there not life and abundance, there is nothing but want and misery. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man that we heard last time. The rich man in hell could not get anything that he wanted. There was no water for his tongue, no relief from the flames, and there was not even a way for him to warn his brothers that if they didn't change their ways, they were going to join him. You know, it's trite but true. The choices that we make on this earth have eternal consequences. And that's why we do people a disservice if we try to tamper with the plain language that we get in Scripture. Jesus is the figure in the Bible who talks most about hell, and he gave a graphic warning about what it would be like to be consigned there. But we would also do people a disservice if we didn't try to elevate their understanding of the beauty and majesty of heaven. It's like you said, heaven is not just a better place than our fallen creation. It's clearly that. But heaven is also a place of transformation for all who have put their trust in Christ. Believers are transformed into new, far more beautiful creations, and in their transformed state, they are able to experience a level of communication with God that is literally impossible here. That's why, when we talk about heaven being a place of continual worship, we can actually yearn for that experience. We will only love as transformed beings, but we will be able to experience God's love for us at a level that would shake our mortal bodies apart here. Amen. Now, ask any person, old or young, how much time they want to spend with their new sweetheart, and they're going to tell you all of it. Well, that sense of romantic human affection and connection, that's just a pale foretaste of what our eternity in heaven will be like all the time. 
Even believers who haven't experienced those things on this earth will experience them in heaven. Life and abundance characterize heaven because life and abundance are attributes of God. God overflows with them. God and Jesus want to shower their goodness on their beloved, which, amazingly enough, is us. And God and Jesus would gladly shower their love and abundance on everyone. It's just that, sadly, there are going to be some people who are going to reject that offer. So what you're saying is that just as people in hell are denied even the comfort of claiming they were put there unfairly, in heaven we cannot avoid joy, beauty, inspiration, and adoration because they will all be before us in the presence of God and Jesus. And we will be so transformed that it will be our very nature to respond unreservedly to the gifts they give. Right. People who accept Christ as their Savior have already been transformed spiritually, but we still live in our decaying bodies. But one day we're going to rise from these decaying bodies, and we're going to receive not only new glorified bodies, but we are going to receive a glorified creation in which we will spend eternity. Well, this sounds like a good time to go to God in prayer. Since Veterans Day is right around the corner, let's listen to a prayer for those who have so selflessly given of themselves to protect their nation and their communities so we can continue to worship and live freely. A Prayer for Veterans Day Sovereign Father, you are a fortress of refuge and a shield of defense to your people. You are the source of certainty in uncertain times. Your faithfulness is everlasting and your pledge to protect your people is true. Lord, today we remember those who stood as shields in defense of this nation, a very great many of whom did so at the cost of their lives. We remember that the Bible tells us that there is no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Certainly that kind of love has been exhibited throughout many generations of soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen. We praise you that you have sent so many brave men and women who have risked or given their lives so that others might live freely and worship you. The need for soldiers reminds us that we live in a fallen creation. We praise you that you are a God of redemption so that we can live in hope and gratitude. We pray for our soldiers and other service members who still serve today in all corners of the world in defense of this nation. We pray for their safety and protection. We pray that you would give them strength for the struggles and battles in which they find themselves. Though many stand in distant, often lonely outposts, we know for certain that your children are never alone because you have promised to always be with them. We pray that you would bring a strong sense of your presence to them and that you would crown their endurance and perseverance with victory over those who love evil. We pray that you would comfort the families of those with loved ones in harm's way, and special comfort for the families who have already paid the supreme price. We pray for our soldiers who have suffered wounds, especially those in need of healing now. We ask that you would help them to get the care they need, and that they would be surrounded by friends and family as they recover. We earnestly pray that you would work wonders in their bodies, even in those cases where the doctors haven't been able to help. You are a wonder-working God, and we remember and thank you that you are not limited in what you can do by man's knowledge or abilities. 
We cannot think of love, courage, and sacrifice without remembering Christ Jesus. Christ proclaimed that the greatest faith he saw while here was that of a soldier. It was a soldier who, in turn, proclaimed Christ to be the Son of God while yet on the cross. We share the centurion's faith in Jesus and pray and give glory in his name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is. Do you have a friend that needs to hear the gospel, but you're not sure how to begin the conversation? Crystal Sea Books can help. The book, The Prodigal's Advocate by R.D. Fierro, tells the story of a man who thought there was no way to find out what happens when life ends on this earth. He found out he was wrong. The story is told in a thoughtful way to help believers deepen their faith, yet allowing non-believers to enjoy the discovery of a love that transcends time, space, and even death. To pick up a copy, just go to Amazon and search for The Prodigal's Advocate by R.D. Fierro. It's time for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace. The Prodigal's Advocate will encourage everyone to look beyond the horizons of this world and find out there is an advocate for us all. And that advocate is the only portal to God's amazing grace.